welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction Welcome to this podcast from the series Talc. I'm Avril Danchak, GP and Primary Care Medical Educator from Manchester. This podcast is brought to you with the support of Health Education England Northwest and their talented GP educators. I'm joined by one of them today. Mo, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Avril. I am Mohan Kumar. I'm a GP working in Wigan and I've been a GP trainer for some years. And I also work as an associate dean, participating in quite a lot of teaching consultation skills for educators and children. Thank you. This podcast is part of the module called Talc Skills for Planning Care. And it's mainly about the subject which is often called creating creating shared management plans. And we've also thought that we should probably call this why personalised care is actually more effective. Now, many consultations can get unstuck when clinicians propose plans for care that patients don't understand or which patients don't accept, or or which they simply ignore after they leave the clinic. And there are lots of reasons for this. Sometimes it's because the clinician has misunderstood the patient's perspective in the early part of the consultation. And in the TALC module, Skills for Effective Information Gathering, there is a chapter called What Differences Do a Patient's Thoughts, Concerns and Hopes Really Make? But any plan for the patient's care can only be effective if it's a shared plan. That means collaborating with the patient to plan the next stage of their care. It's no good having a great plan or following a guideline to the letter if the patient isn't willing or able to carry out that plan or if the patient doesn't understand the plan properly. Nor does it simply mean giving the patient whatever they've asked for, nor does it mean offering a few options and say kind of it's up to you. We need to take the idea of a meeting between experts into our personalised care planning. And this means that the clinician is an expert in the healthcare and medical matters, but the patient is an expert in their own situation, their own family, their own life. And we need to bring these two kinds of expertise together. Mo, I'd like to start by thinking about the question of diagnosis, because it might seem that once a diagnosis has been made, or once a clinician has an outline plan of action in their heads, that their main task is simply to explain that plan to the patient, whereas actually active listening skills are needed to gauge the patient's response to any plan. So what do clinicians need to do to find out what their patient is really thinking about the plans they're proposing? I would like to think, Avril, that, as you said, the ability for our patients to acknowledge the plan, the ability for them to take it forward and engage with it with ownership comes with the clinician's ability to share this plan in a way that it's staged in steps. We could actively ask the patient what their response is. I would like to think that just like how you would ask for their ideas, concerns and expectations of their presenting symptoms and pains, we would like to do the same with the proposed diagnosis and the plan. Because at each stage of the consultation, there is a new layer of ideas, concerns, and expectations. As the clinician gives the information to the patient, their thoughts are running in the background, which they may not always articulate. But it helps if the clinician uses phrases like, what's your response to this approach? What is passing through your thoughts now? 
for example, they could have done an examination and come up with a probable diagnosis. And once you mention the diagnosis, it's nice to ask them, what are you thinking at this moment? If you're proposing a management plan, rather than simply listing a list of options, it's nice to stagger them and say, what does that plan feel like to you? How does it fit in with your background and your lifestyle? You can also almost anticipate some reluctance because patients don't always articulate their reluctance to some parts of the plan because they feel like it is dishonor the clinician, but they may not say it straight away. But asking questions like, what aspects of this are going to be most difficult for you would almost preempt a future um, lack of engagement with the plan, which they may come back after three months and tell you they haven't really gone to that exercise. Whereas if you ask that question, they would let you know ahead of the time what may hinder their engagement with the proposed management. Another useful phrase is what questions have you got at this point? And I think that's a much more poignant phrase than simply asking, have you got any questions? Which usually implies that don't ask me anymore. <laughs> um, and patients usually, people usually say no to that. If you've got any questions, you get stunned into saying no. Whereas if you say, what questions have you got at this point? You're saying that you're almost expecting them to have those questions and that you're welcoming them to ask those questions as well. These phrases assume that the patient has, like I said, has questions and and encourage them to express their difficulties. And that's the kind of a real core of an engaged shared decision-making when it comes to the management. That's really helpful. And I can see how all of those ways would help most management plans to be personalised to the specific situation of a patient. And this question of like, what questions have you got or what are you thinking about it will help us to prevent something that's been called the silent misdiagnosis. We all know about missed clinical diagnoses, but what we tend to disregard is that patients have preferences about what happens to them and that these preferences matter a lot. They matter on the impact of treatments on people's lives, on different aspects of their life that we may not even know about unless we ask. And so if we want to avoid this kind of silent misdiagnosis of people's preferences, we've really got to actively go looking for them. So I want to pursue that a little bit further, because if we find out about patients' doubts or concerns about what we're proposing, does that just take up a lot of valuable time? It really depends on what we mean by the concept of time. If you're talking about the concept of time within a consultation or the concept of time within the management of the patients, in both aspects, it actually saves time rather than wastes time. Because... If, if you allow your patient to articulate their doubts and concerns, then it enhances the conclusion of the current consultation. But it also means that you don't have those multiple consultations where people try to express their reluctance to do something but don't quite do so, but still book an appointment to come and engage with you. And quite a lot of clinicians have this frustration of not knowing why such and such a person is been coming in six times. And Often, when you track back to the original consultation, it was because there was no opportunity to express their reluctance to engage in a particular treatment. If you think about the system-wide issue, this inability to, of the patient to express doubts or concerns about the management plan can result in a lot of DNAs at outpatient appointments, not turning up for mm. therapy, not taking prescribed medication. And if you think about the system waste, which it generates, 
I wouldn't call it a waste of time at all. It's mm. a question of, have we got any concerns at this moment? Have we got a question at this moment? doesn't take a few seconds to ask, but can save enormous amount of resources, both in terms of time and human potential. I think that's a really important point because people often say things like, oh, patients go to A&E because they can't get an appointment. And, and I'm not always sure that that's the case. I think sometimes people go to A&E because they want a second opinion or something like that. And people don't turn up for appointments or, or treatments because that isn't really what they were what they were aiming for in the first place. And as you say, that's wasted time and frustration for everybody. And so it's almost like trying to prevent multiple consultations. You know, a little bit of extra time at the beginning can save everybody else a lot of time later on. I can see how that would work with a lot of patients. But I often hear trainees saying something like, oh, some patients just say, oh, you're in charge, or I, I'm not a doctor, or I'm not a nurse, if you ask for their ideas. So so how, how do you get around that one? That's a kind of recurrent cliche in every teaching session we do when we get both experienced GPs and trainees tell us that when I ask that question, this is the answer I get. So I stopped asking that question without thinking, what was the question I actually asked? What was the wording of the question? And often you find that when you analyze how did I ask that question, that's what prompted the kind of response to say, you are the doctor, you're in charge. So if you, if you say something like, what do you think we should do? Um, that is not going to be helpful because automatically, even I would say, well, you're the expert. You should be, if I go to a, a take my car to a garage and the mechanic says, what do you think we should do? I say, well, you're the expert. You know? Whereas if you say something like, what were you hoping for? This is, how does this plan fit in with what you were thinking before? Have you had any thoughts about what would help to heal these symptoms? This encourages dialogue. So what you are rerunning the kind of ideas, concerns, and expectations, but more relevant to the management plan. This is how a shared management plan thinks. And I also feel, as a GP, I feel like if I have a burning need to instruct them, it's nice to turn it into a question rather than just say, go and do exercise. But you can turn it into, how do you feel about exercise? Have you considered exercise? Have you tried it before? Mm. That is a dialogue rather than an instruction. Mm. And I think once you encourage dialogue, then we can give some feedback it doesn't mean that we have to accept every expectation they express, but we are then able to, as clinical experts, give them feedback on how effective those expectations can be met and how effective they will be in helping them achieve the outcome they need. So this really helps to move to the next steps of the plan. So I feel that this old cliche is mainly because we haven't really thought about the language or we construct that question. And a well-constructed question will give you the right outcome. People will stop telling you that you don't. <laughs> Thank you. I think as well, we, we're talking here about things that make patients feel more comfortable about the planning in question and maybe help them to stick with the planning question or understand it. But, but I think we can go quite a long way beyond that because there's quite a lot of research, isn't there, about the benefits of this approach on the concrete clinical outcomes and that clinical outcomes improve if patients collaborate on planning. And I wondered if you'd like to say something about what kind of concrete outcomes we might expect from this approach. I've been personally quite surprised at how many patients of my own, when I adopted this approach, 
I've seen some significant improvements in even physical objective measures such as blood pressure, control of a diabetes, their symptom resolution. For example, people with chronic pain, just even without starting any active intervention in terms of drugs or therapy, engaging them in a plan helps to reduce their symptoms. And there's been a lot of research which shows that a shared approach of personalized healthcare improves concrete clinical outcomes. And they also achieve much better self-reported physical and mental health. They feel in control. Often when you speak to people, I know you have a chapter coming up on complex patients and long-term conditions, but you do see that people experiencing such illness narratives feel out of control and feel lost. A clinician engaging them in a shared plan using the right language um, would actually make them feel less lost and more in control. Mm. And they feel like they belong um, in their journey. I'm an expert now, and this is how you can help me and take control of their journey, which is a nice place to be in as a clinician. Mm, definitely. So mm. There are several of these outcomes which have been reported. Um, and also the huge uh, the subject of concordance, which comes in, uh, the number of times clinicians get patients coming back and saying, I know you gave me this prescription, but I didn't really take it. Or sometimes you find on a home visit in a much more despairing fashion, you open a drawer or a cupboard, you find 20 inhalers which have never been used. But the patient didn't have the courage to tell you that they weren't really taking it and they didn't really need it. You can avoid all this um, by... Uh, mm sort of giving a better adherence to medication regimes and follow-up as well. So I think in terms of outcomes, um, there are vast amounts of positive outcomes, clinical and, and consistent as well. Well, it, it's interesting that you talk about these very concrete outcomes because this is quite a low-cost intervention. It's a, a dialogue for a few minutes. And those outcomes, you know, improve blood pressure or improve diabetic control. I think any drug company would be very happy to have those outcomes. And, and we need to be very clear about what we can do just with the power of these discussions, which enable people to benefit from the treatments that are available for them. You, we've already, I think, discussed benefits to the rest of the health system by taking this approach, you know, perhaps less wasted consultations, better adherence, that kind of thing. But I, I wonder if you think there are benefits to clinicians themselves. What, what do you think about that, Mo? I think one of the things, when you reflect on a, a busy day at a GP surgery, and when you really reflect on what aspects of the day makes you feel more tired and less resilient, a lot of clinicians report it's not the number of patients they see, but it's the quality of the encounters they have. If the encounters feel like they're not engaging collaboratively, there's a lot of conflict. Um, and also, they feel the need to be a parental no. In the quite a lot of consultations, the clinicians really despair having to say no. Whereas if you engage in, in sort of shared management plan, um, you find that the no is generated jointly. So research has shown that healthy friction in consultations is associated with increased satisfaction because neither do the... Some GPs may feel like if I say yes to everything, I'll have a quiet day and I'll have a seamless journey to the end of the day. But most patients lose faith in that 
and they come to another clinician and say, I've not had any conflict with my previous GP. He agreed to everything. I say, I'm getting very suspicious of the effectiveness of that. Equally, patients may not like somebody who says no to everything, mm. but it's a shared decision-making creates increased satisfaction. I think the healthy friction concept describes how the patient's perspective has been openly aired, discussed, and valued. I think valued is a key phrase there. The patient and clinician can either negotiate something that works for both sides, or at least they feel that they both have been understood and accepted. And here, for the, for the benefit of the clinician, when there is a circumstance where a patient may ask me to do something which can create harm, articulating it to them helps me to express the reason why I'm thinking about not engaging with the plan. So often clinicians don't articulate that inner discomfort. So I say it very frequently that that intervention you were thinking about doing will actually cause you more harm. And as a clinician with the Hippocratic Road, I find it really difficult to go down that. Mm. E equally, it may be even something where the patient doesn't want a vaccination um, or they may disagree with something which everybody else may accept, but at least they feel accepted and they understood the clinician's point of view rather than just be openly judged. So I think it stops them from feeling judged and allows they articulate the dissonance they have with the system and it allows for an open dialogue as well. Mm. And I think even people with the strongest view, when a clinician is more open to and not judgmental and having a dialogue can create change in behavior perversely. So rather than fight them head on, by allowing them to express their opinions, you see that they may go home, think about how respectful the clinician was and change their minds afterwards. So it's, a, it's another negotiation strategy. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of persuasion, not fighting them head on, but allowing them to air their concern. Once they've aired their concern, they are willing to take in what you're offering much better. Mm. And they may even say, we can talk about this again and come back to you. So there are a lot yeah. of clinicians relationship with our patient. I think that's really important about this issue about the relationship too because it's very easy for care to become very transactional and very impersonalized it's like a kind of almost like a recipe you know if these six things are in place then these other two things are going to happen to you uh, and that's the end of that I've ticked the boxes off you go it's like putting a a suitcase on the conveyor belt at the airport, you know, off you go to the next thing. Um, and, and I don't think that builds on the strengths that we have when we have long-term relationships with patients where we can say, well, this is where we've got to today. We can talk about it again when it seems right to do so. Um, I'm always willing to discuss other approaches or whatever it is. One final thing I want to briefly mention, and I'm only going to mention it briefly because there's a whole chapter on this, um, which is about the question of uncertainty, because sometimes clinicians get a bit unwilling to talk about things if they think they're rather in a position of uncertainty and, and they think that's going to reduce patient satisfaction. Do patients really prefer a doctor who always knows what to do? Not at all. Um, I think they'll get quickly suspicious if the doctor's so certain about everything. Contrary to popular view, most trainees think that an expert GP is somebody who knows everything, but often that's not the case. An expert GP is somebody who's able to express that uncertainty which, which exists in, in clinical scenarios, in daily life, 
in, in a language which is understood by the patient. So in fact, they're not just sharing the management plan, they are sharing how you manage the uncertainty in, in, in a way that the patient in front of you understands that. And by doing so, by not being a, a paternalistic or a maternalistic certainty-based approach, you are being very clear about what you know, what you don't know yet, and how you will come to know about the, the journey those symptoms may take. And you are bringing them along as partners in reporting back to you. So they're actually helping you to diagnose the cause of the illness themselves. In general practice, a lot of illnesses don't just arrive fully formed. And more often than not, a single symptom may transform into multiple pathways. By bringing the patient on as a co-diagnostician, using the appropriate language, you then you are actually showing expertise there um, rather than ignorance. And often mm -hmm. patients value that uncertainty sharing approach and you sharing your inner voice. But you're also, you're not just letting them go. You're saying, I'm here and I'm observing and supporting you. And there will be a phase when we can be even more concrete than we are now. And I found that very helpful. I think that's a really interesting set of reflections, actually. It's made me think about a patient I saw with her child who had some not particularly severe respiratory symptoms, but who had had respiratory problems in the past. And of course, it's always Friday evening when you see people like this. And we had a, a talk about the fact that the findings were all normal at the moment, but that I was keen for her to observe him pretty carefully over the weekend. And we were talking about the signs that his respiratory status was getting worse. So we were talking about ailer flare with movement of the nostrils if he was breathless or maybe the child using accessory muscles to breathe or breathing very quickly or sucking in around his chest when he was breathing. And that was fine. And I didn't hear from her again. And I just sort of, as you say, many symptoms in general practice, they can go many paths, but one of the commonest paths is they just disappear and go away. And we don't really know why they happen very much or they just turn out to be naturally self-limiting illnesses. But quite a few months later, I saw the child again, um, actually, when he'd just come out of hospital. And the mother said to me, oh, when I saw you last time, months ago, he was fine then, nothing happened. But I remember you telling me about these things to watch out for. And a week ago, he started moving his nose around when he was breathing. He started getting breathing very quickly and sucking in his chest. And I thought, that's not a good sign. Dr. Danchat told me about that. And I took him to hospital and he was admitted with a pneumonia. Now, in that situation, I, I feel we had a shared management plan and a personalized care plan originally. But because I was sharing some of my, if you like, clinical expertise with the mother who's an expert in her own child and she knows what he's like when he's well and therefore she can tell what he's like when he's not well, then I feel we'd kind of almost shared some of that expertise. And I think you've had experiences a bit like that as well, haven't you? Very similar. I think uh, as we have been speaking, you mentioned the Friday afternoon situation and often because of the way general practice is organised now, when you get somebody in Friday afternoon, you're, 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 you're more panicky about what happens to them over the next 48 hours. And I had a similar experience where a child was brought in, um, probably many experiences where they've come in with an abdominal pain. I've got some surgical experience before I became a GP, so I'm able to pick up, pick his appendicitis straight away. 
a general practice has a lot of abdominal pains, which can take many parts. And they may have just come in a few hours in. And I invite them to join with me in making the decision, even speculating what would happen if they take the child at that early stage to A&E. And they may, have, they may be sent back with a false reassurance everything is okay. Whereas monitoring the child over the next 48 hours, very similar to your description, I gave a description of what to look out for, what kind of temperature will be there, how the pain will transpire. Because the child was well when I saw the child. Um, and I always tell them to ring me back on a Monday morning. Either way, I would say, you know, if you only tell me when things go pear-shaped, I'll only remember those encounters. The 10 other times when I reassured you and it went all right, I would never know. So I asked them to just leave a message with the reception and then I can ring you back. And, and most of these scenarios, what will happen is I'll get a message, which is so heartwarming. It will either say, Dr. Kuma was right, and he was running around wanting a McDonald's on a Sunday, and abdominal pain disappeared. But in those rare circumstances where they didn't have to take the child to hospital, they will equally say, Dr. Kimo was right. We were looking out for these things and they arrived on Sunday morning and we had to take him to hospital and he did have an appendicitis. And it's so nice to know that because you brought them in as partners on the shared decision making and you handed over some of your expertise on what to look out for. And I like the phrase you said at the beginning of the meeting of experts. I'm the expert um, in giving them information on what to look out for to get appendicitis, but they are the expert in their own child. They will know how the child's behavior changes, what he's like normally at four o'clock in the afternoon. And this meeting of experts will bring out outcomes which are fantastic for, for both of us yeah. and for the system because yeah. they didn't just go into a &E. I didn't send everybody to a &E to be ruled out and blood tested. Yeah. And of course, ruling out is a very complex process, isn't it? Um, it? It's often easier to, in a way, rule something in than it is to be sure something isn't there, in a way. And I think the other thing I'd like to pick up as part of the shared management is this whole business of having a continued relationship with the patient. So you don't even necessarily have to speak to them on Monday morning, but you can say, ring and leave a message to say what happened. If you need to speak to me, leave a message to say you'd like a phone call and I, I can ring you back. And I think that in a way, I, I think there's a psychological term for this. I'm not quite sure what it is, but there's a way in which by doing that, you're you're saying to them, I'm holding you in mind over the weekend. I'm I'm thinking about you when you're not here. And in a funny kind of way, you're almost with them over the weekend because you're thinking about them. And in a similar kind of way, sometimes I say to patients, oh, I was thinking about, well, I might see them and I might say, well, funnily enough, I was thinking about you last week because I came across in a journal this interesting new thing about your condition, whatever it is. And, and I was wondering, would that apply to you? Or sometimes you, you come across something and you think that would really help so-and-so understand their condition. I might send them a leaflet or send them a something that I've come across and say, I was thinking about you and I think this might be helpful. And I think that idea that somebody's caring about you and thinking about you when you're not physically there is actually quite a powerful healing thing as well in a funny kind of way. It doesn't require any specific effort over the weekend from the doctor, but there is a way in which that relationship is a very powerful strength on the part on behalf of the patient, isn't it? On on the side of the patient, if that makes sense. Absolutely, Avril. I think you've touched upon something which when you compare healthcare systems around the world, 
what's so unique about the general practice in our country and how we express that continued engagement, that continued relationship. And in very successful practices where the patient population has a really good relationship with the clinical team, it's often those language use, expression of interest, showing continued care, which reports very high patient satisfaction and loyalty and how, so you can't deliver this in a fast food type approach with little franchises. This is about the ongoing engagement of the clinician. And the clinician is able to express this, as you say, being, I like the concept of being present. And often that's how they report back to you. They would say, they were thinking about what you said 20 years ago, and yeah. they give much value to how much we contribute. <laughs> bit scary that <laughs> sometimes especially if it's something completely inaccurate and yeah or you can't remember saying <laughs> I, I once had a, a conversation in 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 town center where one of the patients i was with my wife louise who's a, who's a nurse as well and this patient came up to me and said oh hi dr kuma and then she turned to louise and said he gave me the best advice 20 years ago he asked me to leave my husband and I'm thinking I don't think I ever said that no no Maybe I would it, say I identify the source of distress and yeah let's yeah decide what you do about it but I think in a way that's also an example of the outcome of a meeting between experts isn't it in that you might have been saying look whatever you've come to see me about is clearly because of this intense distress you're telling me this intense distress is arising out of this difficult relationship and that may be all you've really said but they will have gone away and thought about that and said well I'm, I'm an expert in my life so I will interpret those things in order to make some decisions and of course it's equally true um, I had a patient whose child had frequent ear infections as a very young child and I explained about how the, the anatomy of the eustachian tube and how as the child got older, the eustachian tube would kind of straighten and lengthen and, and the angle would change and it would drain better. And that it was likely that they would get better as they grew up a little bit. And that that was why it wasn't probably necessary for them to have grommets and various things, which was a decision that had been made by the ENT people as well. But this patient was left with a lot of worries about that. But then a few years later, they brought the child in for something totally different like a travel vaccination or something and they said you were right Dr Danchat as he grew up his ear infections stopped happening because his head got bigger um, and so we, we do have ways of doing this and I also want to just pick up something which you've hinted at without making it explicit which is that thing about continuity with a person because I, I do sometimes hear clinicians in on videos or in joint surgery saying things like um, well you know if, if this if this isn't get better, come and see us or, um, you know, try these tablets and then come back and see us in a month and let us know what's happening or something. And I think, what do you mean by us? You know, when I say that, I say, come and see me in a month so that I can monitor how you've got on and so that I can know whether what I've suggested has worked for you or you can tell me what's happening. Not this kind of generic us, because it's a way of deflecting that close relationship in a funny kind of way, isn't it? I suppose um, it can work both ways. Um, I, I can see quite a lot of general practice, the way it's been set up, that they may feel that there is a hurdle for maintaining that one-to-one -one continuity. But I think the highest currency in general practice is that ongoing relationship 
the ability to start the story where you left off and not perhaps to start all over again. And I, I completely agree with that. I think Common CB has a lot more power. Um, at the same time, I think there are some practices where there is a unification of how the partners or the clinicians work together, mm. how they're all aligned in the use of language and their empathy. Um, in those circumstances where the patients feel, I, have e uh, I can start the story with one person, but then continue with another, mm. they keep very good medical records. It might be possible mm. to use those, but I don't know whether they were using it as a royal uh, maybe <laughs> maybe. Um, we will be coming to your home visit yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i agree i think that the, the use of me um the most reported benefits are from the clinician having an enduring long-term relationship you often find patients having exacerbations when a partner retires because they've lost the relationships and mm. there is evidence we see that in, in general mm. Yeah, yeah, right. indeed. I think it's, it, it definitely is a balance, isn't it? Because we all know that we've seen somebody perhaps new to the practice or something. You're seeing them for the first time. And you notice things that other people haven't noticed because they've got so used to the fact that that person is like that. So there is a, there is a balance to be made. But in the middle of a given illness or a given disease trajectory, I think there's a lot of very firm evidence that continuity of care, both... Um, continuity of practice and of notes and all that kind of thing, but also personal continuity does have an impact. So we've, we've talked quite widely about the different aspects of personalising our care. And really the key point is to maintain a dialogue with the patient in the second half of the consultation and to really understand their responses to any plans that you're proposing. There are more details about this in the written materials which support this chapter of the TALC module, including suggestions for how to teach and learn this important part of the consultation. And there are also chapters on making decisions with patients in very complex situations, and there are chapters about talking about uncertainty as well. So thank you very much, Mo. I'm sure we'll meet again. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.